If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 222. We're going to talk about the relative proportions of lean to fat mass lost with weight reduction. Recently, a number of prominent individuals have made waves suggesting that anti-obesity medications like Ozempic, Manjaro, and others may cause excessive losses of muscle tissue. While body fat mass and lean mass are, in a sense, companions, a change in one somehow induces a change in the other, a loss of too much muscle tissue would be bad for health. Maintaining lean muscle is extremely important for health, as evidence suggests greater lean mass improves health by reducing the risk of type 2 diabetes, osteoporosis and bone fracture, and all-cause mortality, while improving strength and independent function. Somewhat ironically, the more lean mass people lose, the more likely they are to regain the lost weight. If these anti-obesity medications do indeed cause excessive lean mass losses, this finding would be a huge blow to the now widespread interest. Do the new crop of anti-obesity medications cause excessive muscle loss? Can people gain muscle when losing weight? Just how much muscle do people lose with weight loss? And what does the science say about how to minimize it? All this and more on this week's episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Before we get into our sponsors, I wanted to let you know that for the entire month of April, one of our coaches, Claire Zai, and Dr. Alyssa Olenek are running a fundraiser called Load Women. Load Women ultimately aims to increase access for women in both sports and science. The main event is a virtual deadlift pledge where you pledge dollar per pound or dollar per kilogram against your heaviest deadlift pulled during the entire month. You can also get involved through the weekly events or by buying apparel, all of which are listed on the Load Women website. Last year, they raised over $14,000 for the Perry Initiative and the Women's Sports Foundation. Check out the website that's linked in the description below. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts, trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Pioneer has belts to fit your needs, whether it's a 13mm thick, 4-inch wide belt for powerlifting like me, a Velcro hybrid belt for CrossFit, and everything in between. They'll also custom make belts to your specifications. I bought and paid for a new belt from them last year and been very impressed with both the performance and quality. All products are made in the USA. Check them out at generalleathercraft.com and support those who support us. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Viore makes super high-quality, versatile clothing for inside and outside the gym for both men and women. I'm absolutely in love with their fleet pants and core shorts. If you know me, you know I'm pretty picky about the stuff I train in, and both of these items are super comfortable and super durable with the type of training that I do. 
I've also been wearing their Rise tee in and outside of the gym, which fits better than more expensive shirts I've tried before. Viore also sources sustainable materials for their products and offsets their carbon footprint 100%. Head over to their website, viore.com backslash barbell to get 20% off your first order. All right, we're back here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We have the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. Pretty excited about this week's podcast. Should be a fun one, particularly due to all the hubbub and hype around this stuff by uh, prominent folks in this space. But before we get into it, uh, we have some new content on the website, new articles. Make sure you check that out. It's linked in the description below. We also have uh, new content on the YouTube. So if you're interested in watching more than listening, we uh, have been putting up podcasts and Q&As and stuff like that and also training blogs, things of that nature on our YouTube channel. Uh, we also have some live in-person events coming up. We'll be in Brooklyn. Was it two weeks now? Three weeks? Yeah. So depending on how fluid your your travel plans are, if you want to come join us for a two-day health and performance seminar, that's what Dr. Baraki and I uh, talked about the intersection between health, performance, wellness, training, et cetera. Um, we'll be there in Brooklyn in May. We'll also be in at Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California in October, and we'll be in Sydney in January of 2024. Now, our pain and rehab crew, Dr. Derek Miles at Al will be in Bozeman, Montana in June and in Los Angeles at Monarch uh, Athletic Club in September. And so that's our pain and rehab. It's another two-day seminar focusing on pain, rehab, programming, getting people back to unrestricted movement. Also have some new updates on the app. So if you're a blue bubble gang, got an iPhone, iOS, um, got some uh, video recording capabilities in the app now. And then we also are uh, getting just down to the last few items um, from our last merchandise drop, the uh, university line. Um, so if you're interested in getting some barbell medicine gear, head over to the website. If you want to support us, that'd be great. And again, and I said this, I think on the last podcast or the one before, if you want to let people know that you lift and you lift well, I think you just, if you wear barbell medicine gear that, you know, they already know you're just signaling to other people, not only do you lift, but you lift well, or, or at least it's just a shortcut. Yeah, it is a short. Yeah. You're just demonstrating socially and publicly that you know what you're doing. Uh, and I, you know, we should test this. Like if you're, if you're getting approached in the gym and you just don't want that smoke, put on a barbell medicine shirt. I think people th at that point, they just know, and maybe they would approach you for a different reason. They would ask, start asking you for advice. They'd be like, barbell medicine, are you, are you, you, you doctor? You'd be like, I'm a doctor of gains. Of course I am. So <laughs> give it a, give it a shot. Let us know how it goes. This will be a highly rigorous, randomized, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny though. Cause when I wear the barbell medicine stuff, people ask me questions like, oh, do you know, Austin or do you know, <laughs> Or do you, you know Alan? You were asked if you were me while on a motorcycle, Dude, which is yes. like completely implausible that it would be uh, me. <laughs> okay, okay, right. Let me set the seat. Let me set the stage for you guys. Yes, yeah, so this happened. This was two weeks ago. Uh, was, uh, on a Sunday, I was out at Paula Raceways, also known as Fox Raceway. It's in um, Southern California, just outside of Temecula here. So close by. I'm in San Diego. Now, now to this person's credit, I did have a helmet on and goggles. So none of my face was visible. I suppose you might have been able to see like the beard on the bottom, but that would take some close examination. And the bike is done with barbell medicine <laughs> graphics. It is possible. It is possible to mistake one man for another man without any identifying features being visible. That is true. However, the location should have been a dead giveaway. One, I'm in San Diego, you're in Texas. <laughs> right. So there's that. 
two all over my bike on my jersey etc it says jordan feigenbaum (laughs) it's just like all right but yeah he comes this guy comes up to me he goes but are you are you baraki (laughs) i was like no jordan he goes wait jordan barbell medicine wait you ride and i was like how do you know my instagram without knowing that i ride and that i live here (laughs) i didn't question it too much i did tell him and i'm look if you're listening to this i think his name is jeremy I'm sorry I did not come over to where you pitted afterwards and talk to you like I promised. I just, somebody weeded themselves up pretty good on the track. I stopped to make sure they weren't dead and that pretty much took the wind out of my sails for the day. So I decided to pack up and go home. That's 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 the biggest thing that's changed now in my writing. It's like if I see somebody just eat it and like either need EMT, you know, assistance or like whatever, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm good. Yeah. I should, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Meanwhile, before I was like either oblivious to it or did, did not recognize the, the risk. I mean, it, these are like calculated risks as far as I can, you know, that's how I rationalize it to myself. But yeah, I see somebody who's like, oh boy, yeah, you're going to need a neck brace and be, uh, you know, carted off here. I think, uh, I think we're good. Dad, you good? Let's go. You want to go? Okay, cool. So it reminds me of hearing about like gymnasts and divers and like high skill athletes who, you know, as most, you know, high level athletes do, they use a lot of visualization in their like preparation and approach to their task. And when those kind of athletes are in a rut and they start visualizing themselves failing, it's like they're done for the day. There's no coming back. (laughs) Yeah. Mentally wrecked. Yeah. There was a, I was a race last Sunday. Um, it's the, called the two stroke world championships. And I know people listen to this are like, bro, you dirt bikes. That's what you're going to talk about for uh, just a second. Okay. Just a second. All right. So it was, at this, yeah, yeah. Very famous track, Glen Helen. This is like, if you're like for me from the Midwest or you're out, not from the West coast, Glen Helen racing there. It's like a dream. It, this is just, it's, it's the track that you have to ride. And they held this world championship. And, uh, yeah, so I went there. And, uh, all set to race uh, the very first moto of the day after practice was open pro. So there's 40 pros lined up on the gate. The, they put up a 30 second board telling you like, okay, in about 30 seconds, we're going to drop the gate. Once the board goes sideways, usually the gate falls between zero to 15 seconds. So anyway, boards up there, bikes are revving, blah, 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 blah. Go, go sideways, gate drops. These guys come out rocketing towards, they call it Talladega turn. This is the fastest I have ever personally been on a dirt bike. It's fifth gear wide open into a turn, which never happens on most motocross. It's just, yeah, speedway. Somebody uh, like locked elbows with the person next to them juts abruptly to the left and like 13 to 15 people go end over end, excite bike crash all together. And and, okay, so the, the race is red flagged because these people need medical attention. They're going far too fast. They don't have enough EMTs. Yeah. And and, like and a ambulance mass casualty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then further, the EMTs, they go out there, they get stuck on the on the straightaway. So so the the there's a halt in the action. Again, this is supposed to be the first race of the day. Halt in the action for like 90 minutes. And uh, I'm looking at my dad and I'm like, you uh you wanna you wanna go? Just like <laughs> Like, let's get out of here, man. Like, I don't want to, I, I remember watching, I was so excited. I was like, oh man, it's going to be great. Uh, and then I see this crap. I'm like, nah, I'm good. Yeah. I'm all, I'm all, <laughs> I'm all set. Yeah. I'm all set. I, I, I do enjoy riding. I do not enjoy crashing contrary to popular belief. And I don't enjoy watching other people crash like those crash, like mashups or whatever. I, I cannot, the fail yeah. videos. No people said, yeah. do people send you that stuff? Like lifting fail vid- videos? Uh, yes. And I don't watch them. You don't want to watch them. It's terror. Yeah. It's terrifying. Like you don't it want to think about it for me. Yeah. 
I had a, I had a dream the other night I was playing golf and I was walking down the fairway and I hit like a sinkhole and my leg fell through and I somehow like <laughs> destroyed my ankle. Uh, and I woke up and when I got on Instagram, I saw that at Pebble Beach, a sinkhole had randomly appeared in the middle of the 18th fairway that somebody had like walked into it. And I was like, this could have been me. <laughs> <laughs> carts, carts only, bro. Uh, okay. In any case, we're going to talk about the loss of lean body tissue during uh, weight loss periods. All right. And uh, we're going to get into how anti-obesity medications affect this if they do so in any particular way, how we can reduce it, recomp, all the sorts of stuff that people want to know. So let's, uh, let's get into it. So first off, let's start out with some definitions. What exactly is body fat and what exactly is lean mass? So chemically, for our chemist here on the other end, the body is made up of primarily carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen. That accounts for about 95% of body mass. The other, uh, there's another 50 or so elements that make up the remaining 5%. Under normal circumstances, about 5 to 6% of total body weight can be attributed to the weight of the brain, liver, heart, and kidney, whereas about 30 to 40% of body weight is attributable to muscle mass. At the same time, the metabolic activity of these vital organ tissues accounts for about 60% of basal energy consumption. That's from the brain, liver, heart, and kidney, whereas muscle mass accounts for only about 25%. In contrast, fat usually accounts for at least 20% of body weight, but contributes only 5% of metabolic activity. Tissues such as bone, glands, intestine, uh, or if you're from uh, England or Australia, intestine <laughs> and skin account for about 33% of body weight and contribute 15 to 20% of energy use at rest. Uh, so we can divide the body into a number of different compartments depending on the technology being used to assess body composition. The two most common models are the two compartment and three compartment models. In the two compartment model, there's just two compartments, just as it says. Fat mass is one compartment and fat-free mass or lean body mass, those are terms we'll use interchangeably, uh, effectively are the two different compartments. This is the way that uh, we assess body composition uh, using like underwater or hydrostatic weight. So that's in the dunk tank, which is I have not seen that in the research uh, literature recently. Like people are not using that anymore, but in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, that was like the gold standard. And also by air plethysmography. So that's like bod pod type stuff. So they just both use a two compartment model. There are a number of assumptions about, you know, how much air is in the lungs, lung size, things of that nature. So there's some error there from the various assumptions used in the formula to or formulae to calculate body composition. The second uh, model is this three compartment model and the three compartments are fat mass again lean body mass this time that's just talking about skeletal muscle tissue visceral organ tissue um, everything that's protein except for bones because bones are the third compartment and this is dexa technology which uses x-rays to basically determine uh, how much body fat somebody's carrying uh, how much muscle mass somebody's carrying uh, and how much bone mass somebody's carrying and just as a caveat there again it can be tempting and seemingly intuitive when we use the term lean body mass people think of leanness and kind of um, mentally like translate that into people being shredded and really muscular and things like that but lean body mass is not synonymous with muscle mass it includes organ mass and very importantly water as well so all of yeah. that stuff fits under that that category and so you know if you have a lean body mass measurement um on one of these things don't just assume that kilogram for kilogram that represents how much muscle you have because that is not accurate nope nope that's correct yeah so effectively you can think about fat mass being 
all things fat, and then lean mass being everything else. So again, that does include skeletal muscle, that's for sure, but also everything else that's not fat. So water, glycogen, minerals, bone, et cetera, et cetera. Just anything that's not actually just lipid. Uh, there's also four compartment and multi-compartment models that require additional technologies and invasive testing. Uh, these are limited uh, to use in clinical trials due to the cost, time, and availability of these necessary technologies. But um, some places you might read that instead of DEXA being considered the gold standard, which we're going to talk about here shortly, that these four compartment or multi-compartment models are the gold standard, but they're just not widely used enough yet to really be considered a gold standard. Although that is controversial. Uh, so in any case, using this two compartment model, so either just fat mass or fat free mass, we can further describe uh, what actually uh, body fat is made out of and what uh, fat free uh, or lean mass is made of. So based on biopsy studies, fat mass is about 85% fat, uh, specifically triacylglycerol, so lipid, and 15% water. And there are a few electrolytes mixed in there too. So Fat tissue is not just pure waxy fat stuff. You know, it's not just like a uh, olive oil trapped inside a cell. <laughs> uh, there's actually some water in there too, about 15% water by weight. Uh, in comparison, lean mass includes skeletal muscle, organ tissue, because that's also made of protein, bone, water, stored energy like glycogen, minerals, and all again, all other non-fat components. For reference, skeletal muscle itself is about 75% water and 20% protein. The other 5% is made up of glycogen, fat, Yes, there's fat tissue in muscle uh, and minerals. So there are a number of ways to actually measure body fat with varying degrees of invasiveness uh, and technology. So you can use arm circumference as a proxy for body fat, a body composition. Total body potassium is another way to, uh, uh, to another thing to use as a proxy for body composition. Skin fold thickness, that's like the calipers, for example. Bioelectrical impedance, those are like the handheld tools that use an electrical current to uh, tell you how much body fat you, you're carrying. Um, ultrasound, MRI, CT, dissection, which... Uh, has a mortality rate of 100% <laughs> if you just dissect somebody's uh, body fat. Uh, but DEXA scanning is widely considered to be the gold standard at present for assessing body composition. For reference, the main application of DEXA is to study bone health, quote unquote, uh, and it has become the reference method for the diagnosis of osteoporosis. This involves the measurement of bone mineral density of the spine and femur, femur using x-ray technology. DEXA has been extensively used to assess whole body and regional body composition, um, so like a particular area like upper limbs or lower limbs. And the exposure radiation, people are probably concerned about that, uh, is very, very low. It's comparable to natural background radiation levels and uh, is thus considered safe for use in the population. Uh, did you see this? There was a guy who did a DEXA scan on himself every week for like eight months just trying to assess like body composition wow. yeah, yeah and so that seems excessive i mean a I, bunch of, <laughs> yeah yeah There's, uh, let's not talk about like okay like what changes you're actually going to see week to week but the main con one of the main concerns i saw on twitter about this was like bro that's so much radiation yeah, it's not really yeah. no it's like it's not it's like peed in the ocean it's just not and that's that's probably part of the reason why dexa um, and, and again, for people who are hearing us say this, it is uh, an acronym DEXA or DXA if you're wanting to look it up. But usually if somebody has had like an osteoporosis bone density screen, that's the method that's that's used. And I think the reason why it's kind of viewed as this quote unquote gold standard is because it probably does the best job at balancing accuracy as well as potential downsides in terms of radiation and then cost and accessibility. So like I would not want to undergo something like a whole body CT scan 
to determine body composition. It would do a much better job at being able to quantitate all these different compartments that you're talking about, but the radiation dose coming from a whole body CT scan is way higher than getting something like this. On the other hand, you could say, well, fine, just do a whole body MRI, which has no radiation. On the other hand, MRIs take forever to do in -hmm. terms of like absolute time you're sitting in the scanner and they are very expensive and not super accessible. Um, And so that's a downside there. Ultrasound is, you know, going to be super variable because it is operator dependent. You need the skill of the person who's performing it to acquire high quality images that can then be used to deliver that. And again, it would be difficult to extrapolate whole body kind of composition from uh, ultrasound. I can't really imagine a scenario where somebody undergoes like a head to toe ultrasound to quantitate all of that kind of stuff. That's pretty infeasible. I don't trust bioelectrical impedance. Um, And so all these other methods have significant downsides in one way or the other, where I think DEXA probably best balances all of those things. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, So the within day and between day precision of DEXA is pretty high, less than 2% variance. Uh, While the validity of DEXA for measuring fat mass and fat-free mass is good, there is a tendency of the DEXA scan to overestimate fat mass in lean subjects and to underestimate fat mass in obese subjects or subjects with obesity. DEXA also assumes a constant hydration level of lean tissue mass. So hypo or hyperhydrated states lead to relatively large sources of error. So if somebody, uh, you know, is fasted and they might be, you know, hypohydrated at that point or dehydrated as is used in common parlance, that would be a significant uh, uh, error issue. Same thing with people who are doing like a low carbohydrate diet, since there are large losses in water, uh, particularly early on. Um, yeah, you can see relatively large sources of error in a DEXA scan there. Um, this makes sense given that water is technically lean mass because it's not fat mass. So anything that alters water levels in the body could introduce significant error. Um, and finally, there's an upper weight limit for most DEXA scanners. Uh, it's usually around tree 50 or 350 pounds. And there are size restrictions for height and width in the actual scanner. So some subjects might not actually easily fit the scanning area. In any case, still consider the gold standard. And uh, all of the studies that we're talking about uh, in this uh, particular podcast use DEXA to basically assess body composition. So Austin, uh, just before we move on here, if a patient has a medical condition related to carrying too much body fat, so an individual with obesity, how do you actually talk to them about it? Do you go into any of this body composition stuff? Uh, do, would you explain lean, lean mass, uh, fat mass, or anything like that? I think that the, I mean the first uh, the first pass at this conversation really is trying to elicit why they're coming to talk to me at all because I don't want to be the person who the patient comes with a particular complaint or concern and the physician you know pivots the conversation immediately to their weight and they were not prepared for that or they feel like they were not listened to about their primary concern so so the initial cons- question is why are they coming to talk to me what's their main concern and if you know that if I can get that sufficiently addressed then that's great. Um, If I feel like that concern is potentially related to their adipose tissue or their their, um, obesity, then I kind of try to elicit their understanding of that condition and see whether they already have a sense or whether they already know that it could be related. For example, you know, say they have diabetes and blood sugars or or symptoms related to those things. I try to get a sense of, have they heard these words before? Do they have a sense of, you know, what this condition is, how it might relate if they do, that's great. That makes it easier. Or if they're initially coming in with their concern being related to their weight, then that makes it especially easy. If they don't have that understanding, then yeah, I need to kind of find a way to get my foot in the door with that conversation in a sensitive way to get a sense of, are they comfortable and, and ready to, you know, willing to, to talk about their uh, body fat and how that might impact their health. And so that's, 
kind of something that you need a lot of practice and experience to, to navigate that uh, conversation, um, you know, uh, adeptly with uh, different patients who may have had varying experiences with the healthcare system in the past. And so I don't typically get into like super sciencey weeds on things, but if it is a condition that I feel relatively confident is either attributable to or related to or, you know, exacerbated by their obesity, then yes, I try to get them initially build some rapport, um, gain some some trust, and then see if they're ready and willing to talk about that, that topic, um, usually framing it through the lens of, you know, um, are they interested in learning more about, you know, how those things can relate and how that can give us an avenue to work on their main concern or to, to work on this, this condition. So that's usually kind of a broad, very broad overview of how I approach that conversation because not everybody is necessarily immediately ready to talk about it or wants to. And that's kind of, um, that's, uh, that's their right as a patient. Um, you know, I'm not there to take control of their life. I'm there to be a consultant and to give them advice and uh, I don't need to force it down their throat if they're not ready um, to talk about that topic. Yeah. And, and especially early on the idea that you're going to talk to them about body fat mass and the difference between that and lean mass, very low, just yeah. because how does it change what they do or their understanding? If they have a specific question, I could see that, but yeah. 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 Um, in any case, so now that we know what the body is made of from chemicals all the way to composition, how, what is the actual process of losing weight? Uh, so barring changes in body water, which are typically short-term, body weight is the result of energy homeostasis. We consume energy via food and either use it to power the body's function or store it for future use. If the amount of energy going into the system is greater than the amount of energy going out, the body weight will go up proportional to the energy surplus. Similarly, when the amount of energy going out of the system is greater than the amount of energy coming in, body weight will go down again, proportional to the energy deficit. If the energy coming into the system perfectly matches the energy going out, body weight doesn't change as this equilibrium is known as maintenance. While when there is an overall energy deficit, that is less calories have been consumed that are being used over a sustained period of time, stored fat are, is liberated from body fat stores and are used as energy. At the same time, other energy stores in the body, namely glycogen in the liver and to a lesser extent, glycogen in the muscle tissue, uh, are also released into circulation to be used for energy. Fat mass decreases during this period because body fat stores are being used as, as energy, but also because stored fat and glycogen contain water. So fat-free mass is also reduced. There can also be some loss of protein stores, the largest which is skeletal muscle, which can further increase the amount of fat-free mass being lost. We'll discuss the relative proportions of fat and lean mass lost during weight reduction, but perhaps what's most interesting about the relationship between energy balance and body weight changes is that the resulting effects of a surplus or deficit take place over a far longer period of time and with much more variability than most people appreciate. For example, since the 1950s, researchers and laypeople alike have latched onto the idea that the energy deficit needed to lose one pound of body weight is 3,500 calories. Have you, when did you hear that? Did you do you remember the first time you came across that idea? Probably Austin? in yeah, probably in like I don't know middle school science class or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this came out of a paper in, in the uh, 1950s uh, from uh, uh, Wisniewski, um, and with a few simple calculations. It was, it was thought that one could predict how much weight they'd lose over a given period of time if they ate at a certain level of caloric restriction. When tested in both the controlled and free living settings, so controlled settings being like a metabolic ward where people are kept under lock and key and given 
exacting amounts of food, free living being what happens in the quote unquote real world. These calculations didn't really pan out. Turns out not only is the 3,500 calorie rule incorrect, but also the timeline across when weight loss happens is not linear at all and is far longer than most studies have ever been run. Instead, evidence has accumulated showing that weight loss occurs in a biphasic manner where an initial relatively rapid phase of weight loss occurs in the first few weeks, followed by a slower, more gradual weight loss phase that lasts you know, up to about two years as far as it's currently been characterized. In the initial phase, more lean mass is lost than fat mass. I'll say that again. In the initial phase, more lean mass is lost than fat mass, as the main sources of weight change during this period are losses of stored glycogen in the muscles and organs and their associated water with a smaller contribution of body fat. For example, in the calorie one study where subjects ate at a 25% energy deficit and had their energy expenditure and energy intake directly measured, the average weight loss at week four worked out to be about 2,200 calories per pound. This is far less than the predicted 3,500 calorie per pound rule. And this is likely due to a loss of glycogen, water, uh, and a little bit of fat. In the second phase of this biphasic weight loss uh, uh thing, hormonal and neurological mechanisms come into play that reduce energy expenditure and increase the rate of fat oxidation. So more proportional fat loss uh, is occurring in this phase relative to lean mass loss. In the next 20 weeks of the same study, that calorie one study, the amount of energy deficit required per pound loss was calculated to be about 3000 calories per pound of weight change. Um, Overall, the gradually increasing contribution of fat tissue to weight loss coupled with the gradually decreasing contribution of water to weight loss results in two things. Thing one, a greater loss of lean mass in the initial phase of weight loss and a greater loss of fat mass in the second phase of weight loss. And two, an increase in the energy content of lost weight from about 2,200 calories per pound after one month of dieting to nearly 3,000 calories per pound when maximum weight loss is typically observed. That's usually a year to two years later for a given energy deficit. This effectively translates in a need to increase the magnitude of dietary calorie restriction uh, significantly during this time frame to keep up uh, to, with losing weight at the same rate, which is, it, it mirrors the actual experience. People are like, I lost X amount of weight in four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. How do I keep losing weight at 12 weeks, 24 weeks, 50 weeks? It's like, well, to keep the same rate, you'd have to increase the deficit because now you're no longer losing water, glycogen, etc. You're losing more fat mass. And so really the question I would ask back to that person is, do you really want to lose weight at the same rate or do you just want to lose more body fat? Cause you're doing that right now proportionally. Yeah. Yeah. This make all of this makes sense or it should make sense from the perspective of just like energy flux, I guess would be the term in the sense that all of this is about overall body energy. And we have various energy systems that help us with very, very short-term energy use. This is like, you know, ATP and creatine phosphate stuff. And then we have, you know, relatively short term, but not like instantaneous energy where we're just straight up burning glucose. We have stored glucose, stored sugar in this form of glycogen, which you mentioned here, um, which is, you know, a little bit denser in terms of its energy content. And then the maximum long-term highest density energy density storage site is, is body fat. And so, you know, when you go into a short-term calorie or energy deficit up front, your body is going to tend to tap out those shorter term energy storage sources to include things like glycogen up front and wait to, you know, um, draw upon the longer term storage sources in terms of body fat 
um, until those initial sources are kind of relatively speaking more, more tapped out. And so that's kind of what you've what you've described here. Yep. Yeah. So while the timeline and components of weight loss are likely news to most listeners, the variability in weight change between individuals is likely to be even more shocking. So for example, uh, let's consider a study of 12 pairs of identical adult male twins who were admitted to a research facility where they consumed a diet that was a thousand calories per day above maintenance, uh, every day for a hundred days, uh, except for every seventh day they went back to maintenance. I assume this was from like diet fatigue. They were like, yo, this is a lot of food. We're going to have you gorge six days a week and then let you chill on the seventh day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they, they explicitly measured and allocated like rations almost to these folks and made sure that they eat, they ate them. So they were all at a thousand calories per day surplus, except for day seven on the seventh day they rested. Uh, testing was performed every fifth day. And, and during that testing day, they did body weight, body fat, waist and hip circumference, et cetera. Uh, addition, and body fat testing was actually performed by both CT scan <laughs> and hydrostatic weighing. So I don't know how many do- millisieverts they ended up getting over the course of the study, but uh, that would be another interesting thing to try to get by an IRB now. Can you imagine? You're like, hey, we're going we're to do, uh, let's see, 100 days. So every five days, they're going to do 20 CTs in the course Yikes. of three and a half yeah. months. Yeah, their weight gain was mitigated by cancer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, in any case, at the end of the 100 days, body weight increased by an average of 8.1 kilograms, um, which consisted of about 5.3 kilograms of fat and 2.8 kilograms of lean body mass. Each pair of twins had nearly identical results with respect of to the amount of weight gained and changes in body composition. However, the range of weight gain was very different between pairs of twins ranging from some twins gaining 4.3 kilograms to other pairs of twins gaining up to 13.3 kilograms. Similar relationships were seen for anthropometric and body composition measurements. Some twins gained a lot of body fat, some twins gained uh, a bunch more lean mass. Um, And so the, you know, twins that were related seemed to do the same, but the inter uh, twin pair variability was very, very high. Um, a long-term follow-up study was performed on the same twins and found that after the overfeeding period, body weight and composition changes were again nearly identical for related twins, but vastly different between the twin pairs. Um, an earlier study by the same researchers took seven pairs of identical adult male twins and observed them during a 117-day controlled feeding study, this time in a calorie deficit created entirely through exercise. So effectively, the they had their uh, energy expenditures measured directly, and again, they were kept under lock and key and gave given this maintenance level diet. That's they made sure they eat. The researchers made sure they ate all the food, and uh, this was enough uh, energy intake to uh, quote unquote maintain their body weight. Uh, but they had to exercise on a bicycle. Uh, every day, except for one rest day, every 10th day. And they were instructed to burn a thousand calories per day on the bike. And this was uh, monitored. The average weight loss after this 117 day study period was about five kilograms, which was almost entirely body fat. 4.92 kilograms was from body fat and the other was from lean mass. Um, And this was nearly identical for related twins. So again, a pair of twins they effectively had the same changes in body composition, but there were nearly seven uh, to 14 fold differences between unrelated twin pairs with respect to weight and body fat changes to the same calorie deficit. All this is to say, 
Weight changes in response to a given energy deficit or surplus are highly variable amongst individuals and take a longer time to realize than most people expect. Nevertheless, the final common pathway determining how body weight changes is energy balance. But I think yeah. when people when people hear that, they're like, but, but no, it's just math. You just right. num- number in, number out. This is the predicted result. And it's like, Mm, that's it's going to give you it's going to bracket your expectations right if you're in a deficit versus in a surplus you expect your weight to change a particular way but the magnitude of that change is highly variable and based a lot on genetics and how your body responds to those things yeah and i want to because that was a somewhat dense kind of description for for folks who are not super used to hearing a lot of numbers and and data but i think that these are some a couple of my favorite studies that i reference frequently but people put on an identical amount of excessive calories compared to what the uh, amount of energy that they needed, or uh, uh, individuals who were put on an identical deficit compared to the amount of calories that they needed, resulted in widely different amounts of body fat and overall weight gain or body fat and overall weight loss, again, with the same amount of energy excess or energy deficit. And so you might be wondering, you know, why would that happen? Because some skeptics might say, oh, well, maybe they weren't really eating a diet or something. But again, they were, this was, this was lockdown situation. (laughs) Like they were, this was measured, calculated, given food to them. So they were absolutely consuming the amount of energy that was uh, cited and they were expending the amount of energy that was cited. And so then the question is like, well, how in the world can that happen? Because I thought it was just math. I thought you could do this 3,500 calorie thing. And there's so many different mechanisms by which uh, different people might have varying compensation for the same amount of excess energy or uh, a, a, an energy deficit. So, for example, you know, uh, a, a simple one: you might take two people and feed them, you know, a thousand extra calories. One person might spontaneously start moving around a ton more, not consciously; they just do, <laughs> um, or or various other ways that their body compensates by increasing metabolic rate to a greater extent, um, which means that their kind of energy expenditure, the amount of calories they burn, is actually increasing in an adaptive fashion to the increase in, in energy intake. Uh, on the other side, on the energy de- deficit group, you have people who will again compensate to varying degrees. Some might spontaneously, again, not consciously, but spontaneously decrease the amount of activity that they're doing, moving around, fidgeting, whatever, for for whatever reason. And that's just one variable among many that can impact the degree to which somebody's uh, weight and body fat trajectory may deviate from what a simple math equation might predict for these kind of things. Yeah. And so, but I want to be clear that some people will take this to mean that, oh, calories in, calories out, is not this final common pathway. And that's not at all what we're saying. In fact, that is the final common pathway. It's just that both sides of that equation are dynamic and vary significantly from individual to individual. Yes, people can have a greater increase in this NEAT, this non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Some people will respond to an energy deficit and have a reduced amount of non-exercise activity. So like fidgeting, fidgeting, uh, moving around, you know, things of that nature. Some people, their fractional energy absorption will change. So how much energy they're actually absorbing from the gut. Uh, thermic effect of food will change. The basal metabolic rate will change. All sorts of things. A- any level like thing that we can measure is going to variable is going to vary between individuals that's just the human and the, condition and, and the vast majority of those things are not consciously controlled no yeah that's the whole thing like when i see things on the internet like oh you should try to do more neat <laughs> do more non-exercise activity <laughs> thermogenesis it's like that is not conscious going going for a walk is not 
neat. I mean, it's neat like in that it's cool to do. Yeah. That's actually exercise. So in fact, that would not count as non-exercise activity thermogenesis. You can't just decide to, I'm going to fidget more <laughs> because right. the conscious, the conscious fidgeting, right? You, that you'll just compensate by fidgeting less subconsciously or unconsciously later on. So yeah, mostly outside of your conscious control, you can't just will yourself to do more <laughs> subconscious things. Okay. Uh, so given that weight loss typically results in a reduction in both fat and lean mass, what proportion of fat to muscle can someone expect to lose when losing weight? Uh, there's this widely cited quote unquote rule called the one fourth fat free mass rule, uh, that is relevant, uh, to the contributions of fat and lean mass during weight loss. So this rule suggests that, yep, for every pound of weight loss, a quarter of it is fat free mass and three quarters of it is fat mass. The prediction that approximately one fourth of weight loss will be lean mass and the remaining three fourths of fat uh, comes from fat mass comes from a research group in the 1980s who found that the average proportion of quote unquote excess weight in individuals with obesity uh, was 22% lean mass and 78% fat mass. Therefore, they predicted that weight loss should ideally consist of the same proportion, which was rounded to 25% lean mass and 75% fat mass. Voila! the one-fourth fat-free mass rule was born. However, this rule is more of an approximation than anything else, as there are a number of variables that can affect the proportions of fat and lean mass loss during weight reduction. As we discussed before, weight loss occurs in two different phases, with the first phase being shorter and highlighted by greater losses of lean mass compared to fat mass, and the second phase is longer and has proportionally greater amounts of fat mass being lost. Both of these phases are combined when researchers measure fat and lean mass changes at a single point, which is related to the variability in reported values. You're going to see stuff in the literature anywhere from 20 to 30 percent uh, uh, in most, uh, I would call it a diet-induced sort of weight loss, meaning that these folks weren't exercising, and then variances of that all over the place if people were exercising, if people supplemented protein, etc., Lean mass levels can also change independently of or in the background of weight loss over long periods of time. For example, in most folks, particularly those not meeting the physical activity guidelines, the average rate of lean ma mass loss is about one and a half kilos uh, per decade. This could certainly come into play and suggest greater than expected lean mass losses in long-term studies where body composition is measured. You can imagine like a three-year or five-year study of individuals either post like a bariatric surgery, post anti-obesity medication intervention, post weight loss just in general from lifestyle stuff. It's like, oh, you lost a lot more lean body mass than we thought. And it's like, well, some of that's happening in the background, particularly if these folks aren't exercising or meeting the current activity guidelines. Or have underlying medical conditions that can also contribute to that or accelerate it. Yep, for sure. Uh, additionally, current evidence suggests that body composition changes during weight change depend on not only the direction and magnitude of the change, but also the initial fat mass. So higher initial levels of fat mass tend to lead to a greater change in body fat during weight gain or weight loss. In other words, individuals with higher initial levels of fat mass tend to lose more fat mass proportionally when losing weight and gain more fat mass when gaining weight than leaner individuals. Additionally, larger changes in body weight correlate with larger losses of lean mass than smaller changes in body in body weight do. So you would expect like bar comparing bariatric surgery to lifestyle uh, related weight loss, you'd expect the bariatric surgery that results in a lot more uh, greater loss in weight to have a greater amount of lean body mass losses than lifestyle induced, which is, and that's just a numbers game. 
they lost more weight. So yeah, more of it's going to be lean body mass. And this is just on average. Again, there's so many sources of variability here, not only between person to person, based on the assessment method, based on the time frame that you are looking at. There's there's a lot of variability that makes all of this somewhat messy. Yep. It also matters how the energy deficit is created. They're like if it's done by the diet, exercise, or both. So for example, uh, one of the studies we already talked about, the seven pairs of identical twins that were admitted to a clinical research facility for three months, the amount of calories uh, needed to maintain their weight was directly measured, and they were given fixed portions of food throughout the day to match this amount, and they biked every day to burn 580 calories, thereby creating a deficit. In this study of an exercise-induced energy deficit, the average weight loss was 99% fat. They created the deficit almost entirely through exercise. Another study compared uh, exercise-induced energy deficit to a diet-induced energy deficit, about 500 to 700 calories per day in 52 adults with obesity. The exercise group did light jogging to create a deficit while their diet was controlled at maintenance. Uh, And again, the calorie needs were measured before the exercise intervention. The diet-only group created the same deficit but did not exercise. Both groups lost the same amount of weight in three months, which was about 15 pounds. However, the amount of fat loss in the exercise group was three pounds greater and they actually gained a bit of muscle mass. And so again, it matters how you got there in a way. And in addition, people who are untrained, um, a lot of stuff is going to change with respect to lean body mass. And so you might be, you know, hearing this, you're like, Ooh, if I just exercise more, I can actually gain lean body mass. Well, that's probably true if you're relatively untrained, because one of the things that's going to expand when you start exercising, particularly if you're, uh, uh, lifting weights and engaging in conditioning training, the amount of water that you hold in your body is going to go up a little bit because uh, you're going to need that to power or, or uh, uh, participate in a lot of metabolic functions. Also, uh, increased glycogen storage for energy use during act- activity that goes up, um, all sorts of stuff. If you're sweating a lot, body water store is going to go up. Um, so if you're actually gaining muscle, I would, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised, uh, either, but a big proportion of this lean body mass increases that we sometimes see are probably due to water, glycogen, things of that nature. Uh, these two studies, along with a recent meta-analysis showing that 14 of 15 studies of aerobic training during, uh, energy deficit during weight loss preserves fat-free mass uh, are not universal though. So for example, another study matched the degree of energy deficit across two different groups for six months in men and women with overweight or obesity. One group achieved a 25% energy deficit by diet alone, and the other group achieved the same 25% energy deficit by both diet and aerobic training, so 12.5%. Uh, from each uh, diet and uh, exercise. The exercise sessions were 40 to 50 minutes long and then designed to burn about 400 to 550 calories each session. They did these five times per week. At the six-month mark, both groups lost the same amount of weight, about 10% or 8.3 kilograms, but there weren't any differences in the total amount of body fat or lean mass lost between groups. So it's not universal sometimes. And again, this is due to uh, measurement error, uh, differences in study populations, and all sorts of stuff. Uh, it's not a universal rule here. Um, other meta-analyses on this uh, topic find that three quarters of studies only undertaking calorie restriction uh, present reductions in about one and a half kilos of lean mass in middle-aged and older adults and lean mass losses between 20 to 30%, which is kind of pretty similar to that quarter (laughs) fat-free mass rule. Uh, And those that included exercise reduced fat-free mass losses by about half. So instead of losing 20 to 30%, 
a fat-free mass during exercise, uh, during weight loss, rather, if you add exercise, it's reduced to somewhere between 10 to 15%. Uh, but again, there are error bars on both sides of that. So overall, I think this quarter fat-free mass loss rule is an approximation and is likely most applicable to individuals who aren't exercising. Um, but if you take nothing else from this podcast and you're trying to predict, well, how much lean mass am I going to lose? Again, lean mass, including not only just skeletal muscle tissue, but also water and again, anything that's not fat, you could do worse than predicting a quarter of each pound loss is going to be from lean mass. Austin, yeah, any I think understanding, yeah, just understanding that that is an approximation. There's a lot of variability between people inherently, and there are also things that can be done to um, kind of bias that to swing that um, in, in particular directions. So if you wanted to, for whatever reason, lose a lot more lean body mass, then you could go on an aggressive calorie deficit and lie in bed for weeks on end and, and not move. Yeah. You wanted to potentially bias it in the other direction and lose more fat mass um, and, and less lean body mass uh, than you know, ramping up some physical activity, not as the sole method of generating the calorie deficit, because that's also a tough road to go down. But doing that alongside as part of the process will be a pretty good way to mitigate some of that, especially in untrained people. So yeah. just, just a general kind of, uh, I think it's a good takeaway for people. I agree. Yeah, no, that's a good segue. So, you know, is that all there is to the story? Or are there ways that we can modify this ratio of fat to lean mass loss during uh, weight reduction? Um, so the ratio of fat to lean mass loss during weight loss varies over time and is determined by multiple factors, uh, including exercise, the level of energy restriction and protein intake, for example. So with respect to exercise, we know that inactivity is bad. Uh, a study in the 90s where they placed uh, adult men on bed rest for 17 weeks while on a maintenance diet in a metabolic ward. So again, another one of these very tightly controlled studies. The total uh, body lean uh, mass went down by four kilos during this period, losing 12% of the muscle mass in the upper limbs and 11% of muscle mass in the lower limbs. So yeah, I mean, if you really wanted to atrophy yourself, you just bed rest. Lie down, yeah. Like you just lay down and don't, <laughs> don't move. Um, Exercise does seem to increase the loss of fat mass while simultaneously reducing the proportion of lean mass being lost. The magnitude of reduction in lean mass loss varies by population and intervention. So in general, this effect is more pronounced in untrained individuals. Again, if someone previously wasn't meeting the physical activity guidelines uh, and you now bring them up to snuff, so they're resistance training, they're doing aerobic conditioning, you might actually expect some sort of lean body mass gain or at least a significant attenuation of lean body mass losses during weight reduction. Uh, it is, in fact, more pronounced with resistance training. So if when you compare resistance training's effect on lean body mass losses to aerobic training, you see an additional effect. So it's not just general exercise, but even resistance training specifically has this unique effect that seems to be more powerful than aerobic training. Uh, and it's also more pronounced in studies where there's unknown energy intake, unknown energy intake. So there are studies out there that show uh, gains in lean body mass with exercise uh, during a calorie restriction and weight loss. There are also studies out there showing, um, you know, a complete uh, a complete uh, uh, loss of any uh, muscle mass decrease. So effectively, you're preserving 100% of all of your lean body mass, which doesn't really jibe because even losses of body fat, you're losing some water. So you'd expect lean body mass to go down just a little bit. But if the energy intake isn't known, one of the known compensatory sort of factors here is that when people exercise, they'll compensate a little bit, they'll eat a little bit more food. And so if you add that into the equation, 
well. And then perhaps your lean body mass changes within the error bar of the test. We talked a little bit about like analytic variability in the last podcast, where just tests themselves are imperfect and have a range of error. Even if you were to do the same test to the same person at the same time, you're going to get slightly different results. And, and the, the, the spread on that variation is, is highly variable between the kind of test you're doing. Fortunately, it's relatively low with um, something like a DEXA scan. But if you have two, th- two you know, um, values that are within the error bar of the test, then you don't, then the result might look like, hey, they, this person uh, maintained 100% of their lean body mass when it could just be like, there's not enough of a difference for you to confidently tell. That's just a, a, t- a biomedical testing nugget. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so on DEXA, like I said, the within day variability uh, is about 2%. But yeah, so to adequately power a study to detect like a half kilo of lean body mass change, you'd need like 160 uh, subjects and certainly not all of these studies have enough subjects to really tease that apart. Um, so yeah, one of the studies that gets thrown around quite a bit is this uh, study titled "Resistance Training Prevents Muscle Loss Induced by Calorie Restriction in Obese Elderly Individuals: A Systematic Review and Meta Analysis." There's six randomized controlled trials included here. They uh, trained three times per week. Uh, in all of these studies, they used resistance training, and, and the study lengths varied from 12 to 24 weeks. Compared to folks who didn't exercise, uh, the folks who did resistance training lost the same amount of body weight. Um, they were the folks who didn't exercise were just on an energy deficit, but resistance training reduced lean body mass losses by ninety three percent. And so people are like, "See, you can just preserve all of your gains." And it's like, well, energy intake wasn't discreetly measured. This wasn't a metabolic ward study. Uh, the number of people per study was also well un- underpowered to pick up, you know, small changes. Um, and yeah, I, I, again, I think. Yes, I would agree that resistance training does reduce the amount of lean body mass being lost during weight loss periods, but to completely, you know, <laughs> to take it down to zero, um, I don't know that I feel that strongly about it. Uh, but yeah, like it could happen, uh, particularly in untrained individuals and individuals who have a, a lot of fat mass to, to lose. So there's maybe just some other kind of favorable genetic setup. It's like the analog of like a freak athlete, but when it comes to weight loss, like they're just resistant to losing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. But that's just luck of the draw kind of stuff. Yeah. Anabolics certainly can play a role there as well. Uh, but that's beyond the scope of this particular podcast. All right. So that's how exercise affects the proportion of fat mass to lean mass loss during, uh, Uh, weight reduction. But what about the amount of energy restriction? So in general, larger energy deficits producing a faster pace of weight loss produce greater losses in fat-free mass uh, compared to slower rates of weight loss, so smaller energy deficits. In a study on elite Norwegian athletes, it was found that those in the slow weight loss group experienced a higher percentage of body fat loss, greater gains in lean body mass, and greater increases in 1RM performance when compared to the fast weight loss group. This suggests that slow weight loss may be preferred for performance-minded individuals who are interested in losing body fat or making weight for competitive purposes. And so again, this just, if you have a greater energy deficit, you're going to be pulling energy stores from kind of indiscriminately. And yeah, you're likely to lose more lean body mass. Now, not all of that is going to be muscle tissue, but the more weight you lose and the faster you do it, the higher, you know, you're going to tend towards losing more lean mass overall. Yeah. I think that that's something that is just 
ultimately individualized to the person and their and their situation. So if I have somebody with a bunch of obesity related medical complications, then I would prefer a more aggressive, um, you know, rate of, of fat loss to aggressively mitigate and or reverse potentially put into remission some of those uh, medical complications, like if it's a new diagnosis of, of type two diabetes or something like that. Whereas again, there are no high level competitive bodybuilders who stay super huge and then just like aggressively cut like within the last like five days and lose like, you know, 30 pounds or something to get shredded. They do at a much more gradual pace. And that's kind of like emerged as the strategy that seems to work well in that context where it's not medical, it's more performance and maintaining as much lean body mass as they can while resistance training and biasing their diet, which we'll talk about next. So, um, you know, the context kind of matters as far as what the recommendation or the best path might be with respect to the, the rate of weight loss, as well as like the ability to adhere to the plan by the person. Yeah. I mean, and e- even just the preservation of lean body mass it, it, it should be of pretty high importance overall. Just we know that carrying more muscle mass is beneficial to health. And we also know that those who tend to lose more lean body mass during weight reduction have a higher risk of weight regain later on. And so even just from a purely health perspective, uh, uh, purely health focused perspective, you wouldn't want to lose an excess amount of lean body mass. Uh, and no one's suggesting that, but it, it, what you were talking about, Austin, is sort of the risk benefit. You're like, well, we know that individuals with excess adiposity, so higher BMIs, higher amounts of body fat, also tend to carry more muscle mass. We can sacrifice some lean body mass to uh, rid them or reduce the risk of adiposity-related disease or risk of developing those things. Um, and we might be willing to sacrifice a little bit extra muscle mass compared to the competitive powerlifter, bodybuilder, strength athlete, uh, whatever, who is not at risk, almost assuredly not at risk of these obesity related complications. Um, and uh, that's from more of a performance perspective. So we talked about the role of exercise, how that can reduce, um, lean mass losses. We talked about the degree of energy restriction, how that can affect the proportion of fat to lean mass losses during weight reduction. But what about protein intake? We know that higher protein intake during weight loss is associated with better health outcomes as this generally coincides with a high quality diet as measured by the healthy eating index and other measurement tools. However, higher protein diets also seem to reduce the amount of lean mass loss during weight reduction. In five studies examining how self-selected protein intake during calorie restriction alters diet quality and lean body mass, uh, each study lasting longer than six months, the high protein group lost 15% lean mass while the low protein group lost 22% lean mass, which was statistically significant. The high protein group also had a higher healthy eating score as measured by that instrument. Interestingly, the low protein group in this study consumed 58 grams of protein per day, whereas the high protein group only consumed 78 grams of protein per day. Yeah, so clearly it doesn't take much. And, you know, I think that I'm glad you pointed that out because a lot of folks um, take the the historic kind of... Um, I hate to use the term bro science, but we've talked about it before where it's like, you need to eat, you know, all three the grams of protein per mm-hmm. pound or something like that of body weight. And it's like, eh, no, you don't. And that's why we've revi- we have revised even most of our own recommendations downward over the years for most people outside of that kind of like elite kind of bodybuilding context, which we don't really deal with. So, um, yeah. that would be, that would be more of the exception. Yeah. I, I found this interesting because the average starting weight in this study, these studies, these five studies was about 80 kilograms. So really what we're like evaluating is somebody eating the RDA guidelines, the 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day versus what's, what most Americans actually eat, which is about one gram of protein per kilogram per day. And this is like far less than the sort of 
optimal recommendation for muscle strength gain, hypertrophy gain, which is right at that 1.6 grams per kilogram uh, body weight per day or, or more potentially. Um, and so, you know, what, what would be interesting and what I think we're going to get to uh, later when we talk about these anti-obesity medications and bariatric surgery and stuff like that, when we see these excess losses of lean body mass, or if we think that they're excess losses, some of this may be due just to gross calorie re- restriction. If, if you're just not eating enough food and your protein intake dips significantly, well, we would expect to lose more lean body mass. Um, so in those populations, yeah, it, it, it def- definitely worth, uh, is worthwhile to counsel those folks uh, to eat maybe a little bit more protein than they otherwise would, especially uh, if they're making a lot different dietary pattern choices due to either being surgerized in bariatric surgery or using medications or potentially both. Um, so we know that protein is important, but the amount of protein that reduces lean mass losses the most is not currently known. A 2018 meta-analysis reviewed 49 studies, including 1800, uh, over 1,800 subjects, to determine the level of protein intake associated with the greatest strength and muscle mass up- improvements. In that study, it was found that intakes of 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day optimized resistance training outcomes, so muscle hypertrophy and one rep max strength, but these studies weren't done in an energy-restricted state, so we don't know if 1.6 is like, that's the number you have to have. Uh, but we do know that low protein, like we said, is is not good. So a recent review showed that a calorie surplus with insufficient protein predominantly results in gains of fat mass, whereas there are no significant differences in body composition uh, if body if carbohydrates or fats are the source of the surplus. The same study also showed, the same review also showed that even in a surplus, if people are low on protein, they can actually lose muscle mass. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, yeah, you're in a surplus, but your protein intake's low. You don't even have the building blocks to build protein. Yeah. So uh, a 2019, the, or sorry, the 2019 International Association of Athletics Federation's consensus statement, so the IAAF consensus statement, supports these findings and recommends that athletes who are maintaining or gaining weight ingest somewhere between 1.3 to 1.7 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, uh, whereas very lean, hard training individuals may require up to 2.3 to 3.1 grams of protein per kilogram per day in order to minimize lean body mass losses. Uh, those studies were done in competitive bodybuilders prepping for a show, um, but we, we still don't know if numbers, you know, a uh, in that 2.3 to 3.1 grams of protein per kilogram per day are better than 1.6 or two. It's just a range. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so overall, it seems that exercise and the appropriate intake of protein can reduce lean mass losses during weight reduction by about half and are likely more uh, pronounced in populations new to exercise and those with larger amounts of fat mass to lose. Mm-hmm. We still don't know that optimal protein number, but you could do a lot worse than 1.6 grams per kilo per day Agreed. or getting anywhere close to that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now on to the meat here. Recently, much has been made of how anti-obesity medications might cause an excessive loss of muscle tissue. Let's see what the science says. And again, we're kind of keeping that quarter fat-free mass rule in the back of our heads. Like that's kind of what we expect. So let's start with bariatric surgery here, and and then we'll compare that to these anti-obesity medications. So bariatric surgery generally results in weight reduction of approximately 25 to 30% of total body weight at uh, the one to two year mark. Uh, A meta-analysis of 34 articles with greater than 1,000 patients, all measured at over a year post-bariatric surgery using DEXA, uh, showed that on average, the amount of fat-free mass loss was about 20%. 28%. So that's kind of within our error bars between 20 and 30%, about a quarter of of, uh, that quarter fat-free mass loss rule. It's in keeping with that. And these folks weren't exercising. 
just in general. They weren't uh, as far as far as it was reported anyway. But when we add exercise to bariatric surgery, we should see a benefit, right? We should see a benefit. And uh, again, there was another meta-analysis, eight studies, 347 patients. They were exercising. Some of them used uh, just aerobic training. Others just used resistance training. Some used a combo um, up to four hours per week of, of training. And uh, uh, yeah, they, they tended to lose a little bit more weight two kilograms uh, extra compared to those who weren't exercising. There was a greater decrease in BMI and a greater reduction in the waist circumference by about 5.25 centimeters, but there was no significant differences between groups in body fat, fat mass, or fat-free mass, um, though it did tend to trend towards a greater loss of body fat uh, and gain of fat-free mass in the folks who were exercising, but still not a huge difference. And I chalk this up to just the great amount of weight loss that is incurred through bariatric surgery. When you're losing 25 to 30% of body weight, it's like, that's a lot. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. And, and, and the, the infinitesimal amount of, you know, lean mass that you're going to gain or preserve via exercise, uh, is just outweighed by just the massive amount of weight that you're losing with bariatric surgery. Um, one additional meta-analysis, this time 31 studies on exercise post-bariatric surgery. Again, they lost a greater amount of weight, about two kilograms at a year. It prevented a loss of about one kilo of fat-free mass, um, which is, again, a relatively small benefit compared to the amount of weight being lost. And and here's a, this is an important uh, factor. There was a lower amount, uh, lower risk of weight regain in these folks who were exercising. They also had greater bone mineral density and a pretty significant increase in strength, about 12 to 36%. All of those things being kind of weight and body composition independent. You're like, oh, more bone mineral density, more strength, lower risk of weight regain, all good things. So we're not saying that exercise is bad. It's just that in the context of large amounts of weight loss, I just don't think you're going to move the needle outside of that sort of 25%, 20 to 30% range that we're kind of chalking up as the normal sort of experience uh, with respect to the amount of fat-free mass being lost during weight reduction. Um, so it seems like bariatric surgery with or without exercise produces a lean mass loss of that 20 to 30%, just as we see in diet-induced weight loss studies. But what about anti-obesity medications like Ozempic and Manjaro? So if we look at Ozempic, semaglutide, in the step one study, uh, this included uh, 1,961 adults with a body mass index, a BMI of 27 or higher, with at least one weight-related health condition, um, or they had a BMI of 30 or higher, but without diabetes. Um, the study participants were randomly assigned to inject themselves once weekly for 68 weeks with either 2.4 milligrams of semaglutide or a placebo. Uh, patients who injected semaglutide lost close to 15% of their body weight on average compared with 2.4% among patients receiving the placebo. More than one third of participants receiving semaglutide lost more than 20% of weight over the 68 week uh, study. While the investigators observed reductions in lean body mass, which is expected at 68 weeks for the, uh, semaglutide, uh, receivers, the body composition changes due to the superior relative total fat and visceral fat losses were ideal, resulting in an increase in the ratio between lean body mass and fat mass. In fact, the more weight participants lost on semaglutide, the greater the improvement in body composition changes. So here's how this works out. The average starting weight was about 98 kilos for both. 
those getting semaglutide lost about 17 and a half kilos, whereas those with the placebo group lost two and a half, 2.7% or 2.7 kilos. The average starting body fat was about 44% in both groups. The people getting semaglutide lost about 4% of body fat, whereas the placebos lost nearly 0% of body fat. Uh, and so overall, what you're thinking, you're like, oh, all right, they lost more body fat. They lost more weight. Cool. Uh, what about lean mass? Well, the average starting lean mass was about 52 kilos in both groups. And the folks in the semaglutide group lost, uh, almost seven kilos of lean mass. Whereas those in the placebo lost one and a half kilos of lean body mass. And so if we calculate this out, the proportion of weight loss that was fat free mass in the semaglutide group was 40%. And you're like, oh boy. That is well outside the range of this 20 to 30% sort of uh, normal expectation we have for fat-free mass losses. But the placebo group lost 55%, <laughs> like 55% of the weight they lost was lean mass. And so already your spidey sense should be t tingling. You're like, wait, how is that possible? Yeah, it, it, it makes it seem like something is off with with these results honestly or or at least you know discordant with the rest of the body of literature like we've talked before about like this quarter approximation rule and these other data sets even with bariatric surgery and then diet induced weight loss where you know typically you see less and so the question is you know when it comes to these GLP1 receptor agonist medicines is there something about them or the way that they facilitate weight loss that uniquely makes people hemorrhage, you know, lean body mass? Um, or is there something else that's funky about this? And I think that when we look at the placebo group and they're losing 55% of lean body mass in this particular study, it's like, mm, I'm leaning towards something's up with this particular study rather than blaming the, the medication as having a uniquely negative effect. Because if we saw 40% with the medicine, but are expected, you know, 25% or something with the placebo, then be like, hmm, okay, now I'm more suspicious that something, yeah. but that's not what we saw here. Yeah. I'm more suspicious that the numbers aren't great either due to a calibration error or something else. We'll talk about that here at the end. And so what you, now we, we see this signal in the data. We're like, hmm, this is interesting. So what do you have to do? You have to go find more data to either corroborate or <laughs> introduce additional <laughs> controversy. Yeah. You can't draw one confident conclusion on one one study alone. So we need yeah. more. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So let's move on to uh, GIP-1 agonists. So terzepatide or Manjaro. Um, and so we'll just see, do these anti-obesity medications uniquely affect lean body mass? Do they cause excess muscle loss? So this uh, trial is called the Surmount 1 trial. It was uh, done for 72 weeks. There were four groups. Uh, people uh, got either 5 milligrams, 10 milligrams, 15 milligrams, or placebo of terzepatide. And each one of the groups got lifestyle counseling. I believe it was weekly. They were counseled to exercise uh, 150 minutes per week, plus eat a diet that produced a deficit of about 500 ca uh, calories per day. This uh, was done in 2,500, over 2,500 patients. Most of them were female. So 67 and percent were female. Most of them were white, 70% were white. And the average BMI was 38. So the average weight at the start was 105 kilos, 231 pounds. And uh, it, as far as results go, the weight loss uh, was significant. In the five milligram group, they lost on average 16.1 kilos. The 10 milligram group lost 22.2 kilos. The 15 milligram group lost 23.6 uh kilos of body weight, whereas the placebo group only lost 2.4 kilos. So there seems to be this dose-dependent relationship between terzepatide and weight loss. As far as body composition goes, 
there was a 33.9% total fat loss with terzepatide, which was about 25% greater than what was seen in the placebo group. They also lost more lean body mass. 10.9% uh, of total uh, lean body mass was lost in the uh, um, in the terzepatide group, whereas the placebo group only lost 2.6%. But when we look at the ratio, we run some numbers, crunch them. Uh, the total fat mo- total fat mass to total lean mass loss was about 30% of fat-free mass loss per pound in the terzepatide group, same as the placebo group. And that's kind of more in line with what we would actually expect. And so we're like, okay, well, that's against the data. Hmm. Where do we go now? We go look at even more data. So here was an interesting uh, study. This is this came out uh, this year. Uh, this is a double blind study out of Denmark. They actually they took uh, GLP one um, uh, agonist liraglutide, so a different type of medication than semaglutide, but same family, and they added exercise to the deal to see like, hey, can we? prevent lean mass losses. Let's see, just see what happens. And so they measured body weight, body fat percentage, and this metabolic syndrome score and compared groups. Uh, there were four different groups. Group one just exercised. Group two just got the liraglutide. Group three got exercise and liraglutide. And group four got the placebo. No exercise uh, and no, no liraglutide, just a placebo. Uh, so the results, when you look at the metabolic syndrome severity score, I'll, we just talked about what metabolic syndrome is and, and that will link uh, that podcast in the description below, the placebo actually increased <laughs> the metabolic syndrome score by a little bit. So they didn't get any better. They got a little, a little worse. Uh, this score is based on systolic blood pressure, triglycerides, HDL, glucose, BMI, and waist circumference. And so, yeah, the placebo did not improve any of those things. Exercise alone decreased the metabolic syndrome score by a little bit, a little bit. Almost, almost nothing, but a, a little bit, a little benefit. Liraglutide decreased the score by a lot, by a lot. But the combination of liraglutide and exercise decreased this metabolic syndrome score even more, significantly more. And so you're like, okay, this is this is beneficial so far. I'm with you. Body weight reduction. So uh, the placebo group decreased, uh, actually, sorry, increased body weight by about 6.1 kilos. But what they did here in the study, so they had an eight week sort of on-ramp program where they were on a low calorie diet. So the average weight loss across all groups was 13.1 kilos. And so then they saw like, well, what happens then if once we divide these folks into four groups? Well, the placebo group, again, increased their body weight. (laughs) They lost, they regained about half of the body weight that they had previously lost. The exercise group uh, regained only about 0.7 kilos of body weight. Uh, the liraglutide group further decreased their weight loss by an additional two kilograms. And then the combination of exercise and liraglutide further decreased their weight by another six kilos, uh, which is significant body fat after this period of time increased in the placebo group by about 0.3%. Exercise alone decreased body fat by about 1.8%. Liraglutide decreased body fat by about the same amount alone without exercise uh, by about 1.9%. And then the combination further decreased body fat by 3.7%. And so this to me suggests that exercise in addition to these anti-obesity medications, not only they're like synergistic in a way, and further, uh, it doesn't appear that there's any like marked reduction in lean body mass that's, you know, unwanted or should be avoided or should be considered for folks uh, who would otherwise be good candidates for these medications. Um, so, you know, let's let's talk about some possible explanations for that first trial, that step one trial. Like, man, they lost 40% of every pound lost 
was lean body mass. Why did that happen? So first off, could just be measurement error. And, and the evidence for that is that the placebo group also, for every pound lost, 55% of it was lean body mass. And it's like, are we sure? Like, I th- and they didn't comment on this in the paper, but I think if I was reviewing it, I would like to think that I would have been like, I would have come up and said, hey, uh, are we sure that we calibrated the DEXA machine? Yeah, before? could there have been some, this would, this would be like an example of systematic error that that is uh, that that appears in in both groups indiscriminate of what treatment group they were they were assigned to. And it's like, was there some reason that everybody was just overestimated systematically? Yeah, yeah. it could also be that these GLP-1 agonists actually reduce fluid intake. There's data uh, where they're actually using these medications for the treatment of primary polydipsia. So people drinking far too much water. And so this is independent of food intake. So if you eat less food, you're consuming less water that's associated with the food. But in addition, people on GLP-1 agonists seem to drink less water just in general. And so if water levels, total body water levels are changing significantly, that can have a significant effect on lean body mass readings from a DEXA. And there are diuretic and naturetic actions, meaning that these drugs in and of themselves cause water loss and salt and sodium loss, which is why they're super useful for like individuals who have obesity related uh, high blood pressure, uh, for example. Um, also, is could the diet have been contrib- uh, contributory? So there's been some discussion that maybe these GLP-1 agonists or anti-obesity medications in general reduce protein intake. Uh, I don't think there's good evidence, not that I've seen anyway, that they do so in a unique fashion, but rather this sort of global reduction in energy intake. If people already were like only eating one gram per pound or one gram per kilo body weight per day, that's the average American intake. And now we're eating substantially less food. It could be that they're eating substantially less protein. And you think about the average American diet, right? It's not that everybody's eating, you know, lean protein sources and a bunch of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes or whatever. Uh, so if there's a reduction in, you know, the typical foods that they get most of their protein from, you could see this unwanted effect, particularly without dietary counseling that specifically addresses the need for a protein that you don't see. I mean, that happens in bariatric surgery related counseling, but I don't know that it's happening routinely. Yeah, I don't think it is. I don't think it is among a lot of clinicians who are prescribing these medicines. And then you have a person who inadvertently puts themselves into a low protein diet group if they're consuming 0.4 grams per kilo, um, you know, per per day, just because Mm -hmm. they're super satiated all the time, um, then that's a that's going to set them back from a lean body mass kind of uh, standpoint. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, the the end of the day, the question is, like, is there like a unique negative effect of these anti-obesity medications on muscle? And so I went down the rabbit hole and I found some interesting stuff. So GLP-1 agonists may actually increase muscle protein synthesis and independently reduce factors of anabolic resistance. Now that, so some of these studies are in mice uh, for sure, but some of them are also in humans. Um, and so what I've gotten from the uh, from my sense of the literature, uh, I think I read three or four papers on this, uh, is that GLP-1 agonists seem to increase blood flow to the level of the muscle, also seem to improve protein uptake from the gut. And so both of those things would be strongly associated with reducing anabolic resistance. When we think about why anabolic resistance happens in the first place, systemic inflammation, either from a medical condition or aging, uh, particularly aging associated with not remaining physically active, uh, tends to compromise blood flow to the level of the muscle and also protein uh, uptake from the gut. And so people have a less significant spike in amino acid concentration in the blood, and they have less blood flow to the muscle. And these things stack on top of each other to basically require a higher dose of protein to stimulate 
muscle protein synthesis. And it, so it seems like infusions, now they, they were given this intravenously, these GLP-1 agonists, they weren't given the same type of medication that, that's being taken right now to uh, help manage obesity. But when administered intravenously, it looks like muscle protein synthesis rates go up, if anything. And I'm like, huh. And blood flow to the muscle goes up and improvements in uptake of glucose and amino acids increases. And you're like, uh, how can I get this? Is this a PED? <laughs> yeah, I don't know that either of us expected those those findings. That's some interesting stuff. Yeah, so we'll see how that bears out. But uh, I, I I would like to see a study where anti-obesity medications are given alongside a resistance training program and protein supplementation. And you could ferret it out in different groups just to assess the impact of you know one or both in each. But I would like to see that uh, just to see like, okay, are we back in that 20 to 30% range? Or is it even better than that? I just, it does not seem like there's a uniquely negative effect of these anti-obesity medications on muscle mass, certainly not muscle performance. Um, I can't find any evidence of that. So making a claim that these things make you weak and make you, you know, they dissolve your muscles or something like that. It's like, well, where, where's the evidence for that? Like, you know, uh, there's this one study that shows maybe a more significant loss in muscle mass than we were thinking, but it does that, that thing appears to be flawed as far as how they assess. Or at least it's, yeah, it's just an isolated finding in comparison with the rest of the data. And so if you're having a conversation with a person interested in these medicines or a patient, or you're in a position to prescribe them, for example, you know, you have to think about, are you disproportionately weighing the possibility of excessive muscle loss based on one isolated study finding? And are you inappropriately overweighing that compared to potential health benefits for somebody who stands to benefit from losing substantial amounts of body fat um, more uh, uh, successfully than they would otherwise with kind of uh, more usual methods? Yeah. Yeah. And if anti-obesity medications do end up showing like uh, either a trend towards like this higher range of acceptable fat-free mass loss per pound, so it's 30% or it's even 35%. I'm talking that more up to the vast amount of weight being lost. Uh, in addition, and, and again, body fat has water in it, 15% water. And so uh, to me, it just seems like, well, we've lost a lot of weight. We've lost it relatively quickly. And I know a good point, part, point of that is, is, is water. So I don't think that this is uniquely, again, dissolving skeletal muscle tissue, rendering people at higher risk for sarcopenia or something like that. Yeah, yeah. If you look at any of the kind of weight curves in these kind of medication studies, they're usually, you know, stratified by the dosage that the patients are on. The initial, you know, uh, th- within the first few weeks to, to months after it started is when the decline is most steep. And as you mentioned, that's kind of like that first phase weight loss where things are weighted a little bit more towards, uh, you know, lean body mass loss to include the glycogen in the water and yes, some amount of muscle mass. And then the longer term um, slows down, but is more fat, relatively speaking, more fat mass loss until somebody reaches a new kind of equilibrium state on a given dose of these medications. So all of that is pretty much expected. But if we did see a more consistent signal of, you know, concerning lean body mass losses with these medicines, then that would make the kind of study that you mentioned even more important to do where you had, you know, say four groups or something like that. You'd have a group of people just on the med people just on the med plus exercise, people just on the med plus a, you know, mandated or prescribed amount of protein intake. Um, and then you see kind of what differences shake out on that front. Yep. Yeah, I agree. All right. So we'll bring us to our final question. And, and for the people listening to this who are unconcerned with anti-obesity medications and they're like, yeah, right. The quarter fat-free mass rule. I already got that. This is what they're waiting for. What about recomping? 
It's like a, 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 one of the most commonly asked questions when we talk about weight management. Is it possible to gain muscle during periods of weight reduction? And so the reason why this is even like became, um, you know, like a, a question, uh, the mechanisms behind like what happens when people are in a calorie deficit kind of suggest that no, this is not possible. So for example, studies looking at muscle gain in individuals during dieting phases show a reduction in rates of muscle protein synthesis at rest, regardless of training status. When combined with resistance training, muscle protein synthesis rates normalize and elevate about 30% higher than levels seen when consuming maintenance calories. So there's sort of, there's this sort of anabolic rescue, but that second part wasn't really known when these first mechanisms were postulated. So long-term studies on muscle gain during calorie restriction consistently show simultaneous increases in lean body mass and loss of fat mass in both trained individuals and individuals with obesity. Now, this isn't universal. You're going to find studies out there where people have lost a little bit of lean body mass when they lost weight, particularly as the weight loss becomes greater and greater and greater or faster and faster and faster, or they didn't actually train during the thing, or they ate a low amount of protein. But if you check off all those boxes and you're like, oh, well, I only lost a little bit of weight. I lost it slowly. I resistance trained. I ate enough protein. You're stacking the deck in your favor. You're stacking the deck in your favor. And so, yeah, we do have good ample evidence in both trained and untrained individuals, uh, that you can increase lean body mass, particularly muscle mass, uh, when losing body fat. And again, I would, uh, I would tend to feel more confident in predicting that somebody would gain lean body mass um, while losing body fat if they're relatively untrained. And so they're new to training in general, uh, again, and if they're losing weight slowly, um, particularly if they had a lot of fat mass to lose initially and are engaging in an intelligent resistance training program. But we've seen this in elite Norwegian athletes. We've seen this in division one, a football players. Uh, we've seen this in IFBB, uh, uh, competitors, uh, females in this particular study. And so when it comes to just general, general population, I think this is probable that folks, again, new to training, carrying a bunch of fat mass initially, uh, who are undergoing relatively slow weight loss. Um, who are now uh, engaged in resistance training and conditioning to meet or exceed the physical activity guidelines, they're likely able to gain muscle mass and lose body fat at the same time. Or again, if you have a favorable genetic hand and or are assisted by anabolic steroids. So like all of those things can can certainly contribute. Um, but I just, I think <laughs> embarrassingly, I'm sure that I've written at some point, like you can't gain muscle if you don't gain weight. And, and, and speaking in absolutes, uh, just, that's just not the way we've talked for a long time now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and so I, I think though, if you were trying to predict the amount of muscle mass being gained, I would feel very confident in saying you're likely to gain more muscle mass if you're at maintenance or in a slight surplus, because we have ample evidence that, uh, the larger the surplus is, the more muscle mass you gain. The downside of that is so people are like, oh, it's just bulking <laughs> season. Well, you also gain more fat mass. Sure. And so that yeah. may not be a trade-off that, that you want. As far as the amount of fat mass related to muscle mass that you gain, that is a more complex situation. Uh, That's sort the, of that, that ties into the variability we described with those overfeeding studies at the beginning, where you fed everybody the same surplus and you saw this huge range in differences of who, how much fat and lean mass people gained um, despite the same surplus. So it's like pretty difficult to predict that on an individual basis. 
Yeah. Yeah. In addition to like this, this sort of unknown, this P ratio, that partitioning ratio. So how much fat mass do you gain relative to lean body mass? Some researchers hold that this is a fixed value. It does not change. It's sort of like, this is your genetic hand and you get what you get. Whereas other researchers are like, uh, not, not so much. This varies over time, uh, with the, you know, the more fat mass that you have at a given time, uh, suggests a less favorable P ratio when gaining weight. So you'd gain more fat mass relative to lean mass, but a f- more favorable P ratio when losing weight. So you lose more fat mass than, than lean mass. Uh, that is still up for debate, but the best evidence I've seen on that suggests that if you are resistance training, if you are eating enough protein, you are stacking the deck in your favor for the most favorable P ratio that you can uh, attain. The one nuance bit here or caveat here is if you've recently lost a bunch of body weight and you decide, well, now it's bulking season. Now, finally, I can bulk. My waist circumference is well under the cutoffs for increased risk of adiposity-related chronic disease. I'm at the body fat level I prefer. And then immediately, without any sort of maintenance period, you decide to gain weight. At that point, you are primed anabolically, but not for lean body mass. You're primed anabolically for fat mass. So it's like getting, imagine getting done with a bodybuilding show and you're like, yes, it's time to eat. Let's go. Mostly fat mass restoration for the first few weeks until that gets similar to where you started and then lean body mass. That's why that maintenance period seems to be so important. But I don't think this is something you can completely avoid. The idea that you're like, all right, I was stage lean. I did a maintenance period afterwards, and now I'm going to start gaining weight. Yeah, you're going to gain some fat mass. Yeah, it's like you're replenishing your uh, personal strategic petroleum reserve. <laughs> <That's what laughs> yeah. first. The long-term stores, uh, fill those back up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, must, must do. So that's the story on recomp. So take-homes here. Weight loss is dynamic, and contributing portions of fat and lean mass change over time. The quarter fat-free mass rule is really more of an approximation, but it's a reasonable rule to sort of predict things that would change. I would consider anything between 20 to 30% about normal, less than 20% favorable. And if you stack the deck uh, in your favor uh, with uh, the right amount of protein, exercise, and a slow uh, weight loss rate given a modest energy deficit, those things would be I would, key. I would, I would also add one additional thing that actually didn't come up in the podcast because there's... Um, there's studies including uh, sleep restriction during weight loss and getting adequate sleep versus restricted sleep. People who do not sleep enough during dieting weight loss phases lose more lean body mass and, uh, compared to the amount of fat mass and those who get adequate sleep. Uh, it is uh, a better kind of proportion there. So protein, exercise, and sleep, all things that we have talked about at length in most other episodes, things that we recommend regardless for people become even more important if you want to, as you said, stack the deck in your favor for how much lean versus fat mass you lose in a dieting phase and arguably how much lean versus fat mass you gain in a gaining phase. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely talked. I remember talking about that. I think I did a research review on that as well. Um, and exercise and protein intake are useful for reducing lean, lean mass losses, which in and of itself is health promoting in addition to other weight independent health effects. So even if it doesn't change the proportion of lean mass being lost, yeah, there's still weight independent and body composition, independent health benefits that you would want. And Anti-obesity medications do not seem to be uniquely detrimental to lean mass, uh, would not recommend avoiding these medicines due to concerns over excess muscle loss. If that changes, we'll do a follow-up podcast. We'll be, we'll be the first to let you know. <laughs> yeah, you guys will hear about it. But I just feel like the claims are just unfounded and creating, again, additional barriers to uptake 
I'm just like, guys. Yeah, the soundbite that we got sent was like a claim or a quote that like, these medicines are making people fatter. And it was just infuriating to hear that. <laughs> like, like, no, what? they're not. <laughs> just like, nonsense. Like, so one, yes, that is nonsense. And, and two, if you were concerned about just lean body mass losses, just say that. Hey, yeah. if, you, if someone came out and said, hey, I'm concerned based on the study that the losses might be excessive. That right. is a perfectly reasonable like thought to have. Yes. Uh, and then say, I'm not sure because additional <laughs> data does not really corroborate this, but also it hasn't been extensively studied. It just doesn't look like this is like a uh, a smoking gun just yeah. yet, given given the limitations we discussed. I'd be much fine with less, that. Much less sexy TV soundbite, though, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> this is why this nobody's. Is the, this is why we're not we're on the about news. to say the same thing. This is why nobody's inviting us to go on the news. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, any additional thoughts? Any other take home Austin's no. corner type type vibes? No, no. Most people should probably train more, as we've been saying for uh, what a decade now. So. Dude, yeah, I know. All right. Well, that's been episode two hundred twenty-two of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning, and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Special shout out to Doctor Austin Baraki for joining me on this week's podcast. Uh, before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, so we keep it keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Make sure to check out our sponsors and all of the resources linked in the description below. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.